Let's turn now to our scripture reading, which comes first from the book of Psalms, Psalm 130. We see here, too, some of the convictions of God's people in a time very long ago, and yet uh, that, that has so much in common with the hope that we also have. Psalm 130, this is a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, Who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. So far, Psalm 130. And then let's also turn to the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 65. And we'll read verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 65, verse 1, you hear God speaks, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So far, the word of the Lord. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 50. Stanzas 1 and 8 through 11. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 5. That's on page 521 of your books of praise. Praise. 
Lord's Day 5. There the question is, since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we, by ourselves, make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can any mere creature pay for us? No, in the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is one who is at the same time true God. So far, the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've spent the last several weeks looking in some depth at the reality of, of our sin and our misery. That's never, it's never a nice topic. Uh, and so we do well to be reminded of, of the words. I quoted them at the very beginning, um, back in Lord's Day 2. Uh, words from the Professor Jordan Peterson in, in the, the University in Toronto uh, where he, he said, quoting from Carl Jung himself, the thing that we most need to see is going to be found in the place where we least want to look. The thing we most need to see will be found in the one place we least want to look because that will be the one place we haven't yet looked. Uh, and, and we applied that, that concept then to the reality of our human condition before God. Why are we the way we are How can things be made right with God? We've looked in many places. The truth that we we most need to see is going to be in the place we least want to look, and that is in the darkness and the depth of sin within our own hearts. Uh, So we need to see the awful, ugly, uncomfortable truth about our sin. Uh, We need to see it now. Uh, I say this by way of preface. We need to say it now because we will see it either way on the day of judgment. So we need to see it now. And on that day, there will be no excuses left. Uh, There is no appeals court in God's throne room. If uh, If God declares to us on that day, I already called out your sin. I showed it to you. I laid it out in my word. I had it preached from the pulpit under which you sat. And all along, you refused to acknowledge it. And, and repent from it, then there's nothing left for, for any of us to say. If, if we don't hear God's word now, it will be too late when we hear it and we see our sin on the day of judgment. Uh, there's, there's never any point in arguing before God, no God, I didn't see or I didn't know. God says, no, I showed it to you. Uh, if we're unwilling now to follow God's word, as God's word takes us into what may be dark corners of our own hearts and expose them to the light of the truth uh, and, and allow God's word to search us out, to search out our heart, our motive, our, our self-deception. If we're unwilling to do it now, we'll end up seeing the same things on the final day, uh, but that will then be 
too late. So that's why we've been here for several weeks working through the, the depths of our own sins so that they can be put out into the light so that we may find hope from the same God who calls our sin out for what it is. Uh, so the call for us now, while we are still on earth, is to deal with the things that must be dealt with regarding our sin. Uh, to open the Word of God with a heart that's ready to see what God reveals. A heart that's ready to be taught by God about what is right and, and what is not right and what must yet be fixed in our own hearts. And now is a good time to say that uh, though God's judgments are perfect and there will be a time when we will stand up before God's judgments and for some where there will be no more hope for forgiveness, yet now, while we still have breath in our lungs, God is calling us now then to deal with our sin. And the promise, the promise that's made, we saw this several weeks ago in James chapter 4, uh, there's a warning first where he says, uh, God is jealous for the spirit he's made to dwell in us. There's a warning there. God is jealous for his spirit within us. He will not tolerate self-deception. He will not tolerate us telling lies to ourselves or making excuses to ourselves. But then with that, there's also a promise in James 4. He says, yet God also gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the Apostle James continues, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's the promise. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, searching out things that are hard to see, hard to confront, we humble ourselves before the Lord, knowing that He will exalt us in His time, in His way. And so that's what we've been doing then for the last uh, several weeks. And in that process, we've also been removing from ourselves every excuse that we might be inclined to make before God because we know that they will ultimately do us no good before the throne of God. Uh, so we're recognizing lies we've told ourselves and then discarding them, saying these will not do us any good. We will cling to these no longer. Uh, so back in Lord's Day 3, we dealt with the question, did God create us as sinners? In other words, could it be that our sinful condition is actually God's fault? God made us this way, and this is one of the lies that people tell themselves. This is just the world that God made. God made us this way. I can't help it. This is who I am, and so God cannot judge me for it. Uh, and, and we saw that, that, that that excuse will do us no good. God didn't make us this way. We fell into sin. And yes, we may say, well, what, it, it was Adam and Eve's fault, not, not my fault, and yet you are who you are, and God is not responsible for who you are and the person you have become. Our sins, and every one of us knows this when we sin, our sins are our own. They're not anybody else's. No one made us do it. Our sins are our own. Uh, so James, again, says in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he's being tempted that he's being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted but with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Where do our sins come from? They come from within our own hearts. So that was the first question in, in Lord's Day 3. Uh, then in the next question, in question 8, we dealt with another excuse that we tell ourselves that maybe our sins are really not so bad. Uh, this is minimizing. Uh, so we say, sure, n- nobody's perfect, but we're still, we're not that bad. We're still pretty good people. And then we, we work through the biblical reality of, is that how God really sees us? And we saw in, in Genesis 9, uh, where, where God declared, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Pretty negative assessment of our condition. And again, God's opinion is the only one that counts. Uh, we're measuring ourselves by a different standard uh, than, than the one that we want to measure ourselves by. We measure ourselves by God's standard. And then in question 9, we dealt with another excuse that, well, is it fair for God to punish our sin, uh, because after all, after the fall into sin, there's, there's not one of us that's able to keep God's law perfectly, uh, which is saying, in effect, that if uh, because we fell into sin, God needs to change His standards. You know, we can't keep them, so God must change them. And we saw that that is a massive and, and a dangerous assumption. Now, why should God change His perfect law in order to accommodate our inability to keep it? And we saw that that's simply not how God presents His law to us. Uh, Genesis 2, verse 17, He said to Adam and Eve, uh, "...on the, the, the tree of good, the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die." Here is the standard. Uh, or Psalm 7, verse 11, "...God is a righteous judge." And a God who feels indignation every day. God is a righteous judge. He feels indignation every day. And so we cannot expect God then to change His standard to accommodate our inability to keep it. That is our responsibility. And then in question 10, we considered yet another excuse or, or, or false hope that perhaps God just isn't going to punish us. Uh, maybe He can just overlook our sin. And there again, the answer was, was quite clear from Scripture. Uh, open God's Word. See for yourself. Uh, look at the judgment poured out on Israel after Israel's disobedience. Read the book of Revelation, how God poured out His judgment there uh, on, uh, on, on the people that are there and, and in, in many times in history. Uh, God has made good on His Word over and over again. Why should we think He will not do so again? Uh, Question 11 sort of dealt with the same objection. Yeah, but will God really punish us? Because after all, God is also merciful. Uh, God is love after all, right? Isn't that what Scripture says? And yet that's not all that Scripture says. Yes, He is love. That's why He created us. That's why He sent Christ to rescue us. And that's why He calls us to repentance so that we would not perish. And yet, He's also just. In the words of Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. He puts a price on our sin and it is a price that in His justice will be paid. 
He makes it abundantly clear in his word that on the day of judgment, uh, there will be many sinners cast into hell. It it will happen. And, And there, as we saw last week, they will suffer in horrible agony day and night in perfect justice for all eternity. We saw last week too how uh, over, over, the, over the eternity that sinners spend in hell, the day does not come that they ever repent. Uh, we saw that in Revelation. They shake their fists at God. They say uh, they curse God's name and, and, and say in effect, God, how dare you? God, this is wrong. And yet it is an empty plea before God. Uh, So, we saw last week, all of us, by virtue of our own guilt, our own sin, are in no position to question God's judgments. So these are, these are some of the excuses and the, uh, the deceptions that we tell ourselves. Uh, and and we've, we've been taking them, each one of them, looking at them, holding them up in the light of God's Word and saying, this too cannot stand. And so this too must be discarded. Uh, and so we come then to Lord's Day 5. And the first thing we want to recognize here in Lord's Day 5 is the question that it begins with, uh, which is... Uh, which is more of a confession than a question. It is, at least in the first place, a confession. And it's good to see that. If we've done an honest searching of God's Word, then this is where we must go. uh, To that question that says, Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. That's saying, yes, I recognize, I confess that God's judgments are true and just. We saw that was the confession of the angels uh, in Revelation 16 as well, where they say, just and true are your judgments as they see sinners cast into hell. And that was the confession of David as well in Psalm 51, uh, where, where he, he said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So when by, when by God's grace we're able to make that confession, uh, then Lord's Day 5 opens for us the question, what then shall we do? How can things be made right with God? Uh, you, we also want to notice in the question there that there, there are two things that we as Christians seek. Uh, we don't just seek to escape hell. Uh, that, that may be the foremost concern uh, for many people, how can I escape hell? How can I get out of hell? Uh, and that, that might be what we're most distressed about, but there is nowhere in between heaven and hell. Uh, there, there's no middle ground uh, where you can just escape hell and, and then uh, disappear for eternity. Uh, there are no, there's no non-existence. There is only heaven and, and hell. Our souls are immortal. We will live for eternity in one of two places. Uh, so our question is not just how do I escape hell? How do I get out of that horrible judgment we read about last week? But, but even more, how can I be received into God's favor? How can I be restored? How can things be made right between me and God, so that I actually may know God's love again, be in God's favor again. And and this is what we were made for, after all. We were made to know God, to love Him, and to live with Him. Uh, So the, the, the unregenerate heart, the hearts of sinful men, 
they may still shudder at the thought of hell, uh, but then they, they, they think, if, if I can just escape hell, then everything's fine. I don't need heaven. I don't need God. I just want to escape hell. Uh, but there is no, no plain escaping hell. It is, it is one or, or the other. There's no getting away from God. Even in hell, God is there. God is present in terrible, eternal judgment. Uh, so, if by God's grace we're able to hear God's word, calling out our sin, warning us of God's judgments, uh, and we're able to confess that His judgments are true and just, then it is our cry not just to be delivered from hell, but to be restored to God's favor. And that's the focus of this Lord's Day. Is there hope for sinners like us? Now I want to begin by by putting a few more things on the table to to discard them. That's what the Catechism also does. Dealing with some some false hopes, uh, some vain hopes. And this is where worldly religion comes in. Uh, so, uh, as in, in the last several weeks, we still have some options that we cling to naturally that we need to realize these are non-options. We cannot go down those roads. The one option that's set forth by the majority of world religions in one form or another is that somehow we can manage this problem by ourselves. Uh, we can fix this ourselves. We can pay off the debt. If we owe a debt to God, we can pay it off. Uh, and and this, this belief hangs on, on two fundamental lies, both of which we've already dealt with, and yet they're, they're so deep within us that they, they very quickly return to the surface. Uh, belief number one is our sin isn't so bad. That's why we think we can, we can take care of it ourselves. It's manageable because in our minds we think it's really not so bad. And, and that, that, that may sound pious. It may sound pious to say, I, I can fix this between me and God. I, I'll, I'll do what's right. I'll, I'll make it uh, right again. That may sound pious, but in fact, it is not pious uh, at all. Uh, there's nothing pious about it because it's minimizing our sin and our condition in spite of God's clear word. Uh, it's pretending that my sins are not as bad as God declares, they are. It's not pious to say, God, I can fix this, because God has already said, no, no, you can't. Uh, and, and, and that is, it's a form of minimizing. It's saying, my sin's not as bad as God says. So if, if I just go to church, or, or if I pray to God five times a day, or, or make a pilgrimage uh, somewhere, or, or offer sacrifices, or, or dedicate money to, to charity, or to a cathedral, whatever my, my token good deed might be, it's believing that that covers my sin. Uh, this deed is, is bigger, or at least as big as any sins I may have committed, and that's not true. God says, no, it's not. Your sin is a far bigger deal than you are willing to accept it is. Uh, The other lie that this hangs on is that God doesn't need justice. And so the idea is, uh, if I can do good, that somehow pays or balances out the bad. That's not the way that God's justice works. Uh, Even if I do much good, none of that cancels out the bad that I might also have done. Uh, and we know this in our own human justice systems as well. If I save two people from drowning and then I kill a third person, I'm a murderer and accountable for that murder. 
uh, doesn't matter how many lives I save, none of that erases the lives I've taken. Uh, our good deeds don't outweigh our bad ones. That God's justice doesn't work that way. But that's the way that man-made religion works. It's based on the idea that these things can be weighed out against each other, balanced out to get to zero or to a positive. Uh, and, and so the religions of the world identify these, these good deeds, often, often ritual, token good deeds, that if you do them can be counted out against your bad deeds. Uh, this, is, this is the idea of, of karma. Uh, and, and so this kind of religion requires us to ignore how serious the bad deeds are uh, and, and come up with some good deeds that, that can be put in their, in their place. So you say a certain number of prayers a day, uh, you make some pilgrimages, you donate some time, you donate some money, uh, you bathe an idol in milk, if, if that's what it takes, whatever it may be, and those good deeds will now be sufficient to cover my bad ones, and the slate is clean. The problem is God's justice just doesn't work in that way. The scales will not be balanced. This is self-delusion. God looks at your life, sees you for who you are, and has declared again and again, you are a sinner. You, you cannot pay off this debt. You are not Good and and your good deeds, even if even if you had as as many good deeds as you've committed sin, uh, they will not come close to balancing the scales because it just doesn't work that way. And yet we we do want to recognize this is the way that most people in the world live. We live in our sin, and then when our guilt accumulates to the point that we we begin to feel uncomfortable, it, it starts to flow over over the brim. We offer some token good deeds. We do something to assuage our conscience. And, and whether that's you know, donating charity, giving to the homeless, uh, even recycling, you say, oh, there's a good deed I've done. And, and this now assuages my conscience. It sort of inoculates me against, against the feelings of guilt. And, and then we carry on in sin until it happens again. And we do the same thing again. This is how religion works, man-made religion. But it's not the way that God's justice works. Uh, And as people made in God's image, we we understand this in our own justice system, and that that testifies against us. Uh, We we recognize this is not how our justice works. Why should it be how, how God's justice works? So again, the first step of repentance then uh, is submitting ourselves to the just judgments of God, saying your judgments are true and just. And man-made religion is not repentance because it refuses to submit itself to those just judgments. It's standing up before the face of God and declaring, I don't care, God, what you say I'm still going to pay off my own debt. I will be the judge of the seriousness of my condition, and I will decide what the terms of fixing it are going to be. Uh, And and so man-made religion might express itself on the surface in many good deeds, uh, in all sorts of of pious religious expression, maybe charitable uh, humanitarian expression, and yet what is it at its heart before God? It is saying, God, I am the judge, and you are not. I will set the terms, and you will not. 
That's why we read from Isaiah 65. It's a bit of an interesting chapter because God seems to be complaining about very religious people. Uh, very, he seems to be very upset with these religious people. Uh, so he says in, in verse 1 in Isaiah 65, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. God's saying, uh, this, this religious people, Israel, uh, refused to listen to me, and so I'm going to another people. And then he takes his case directly to the people of Israel. Uh, and and he's, he's, he calls it uh, their religion rebellion. He says, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, who follow their own devices. There's our key phrase. They, uh, their religion is a following of their own devices. The problem with the people of Israel over all these centuries that that God sent prophets to them and then they killed the prophets and God sent more prophets. The problem was not that they were not religious. They were a religious people. Uh, They do follow something, but it is, as God says, their own devices. And so God identifies us in verse 3. He says, They are a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. So now we get a picture of some of the specifics of, of this religion. Sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks. Um, this is referring to the practice of, of worshipping at the high places. So when we read through First uh, and Second Kings, uh, this is a theme that comes up over and over. Uh, the king did some things that were right, some things that were wrong, but he never removed the high places. And God complains about it in every king. Uh, he did not remove the high places this is what was happening there at those high places. Sacrifices were offered. Uh, they, were, they were doing these religious practices. And you might look at it and say, what's the big deal? Uh, how can God condemn pious, devoted religion? Uh, what's wrong with that? Look at all these, these sincere people. They're finding these quiet places to worship God. They're making sacrifices, uh, offering prayers. How can God condemn this? But turn the question on its head. Uh, If God has said for centuries already, this is not the worship I desire. Right from the beginning, he sent a prophet to Jeroboam with the golden calves that Jeroboam set up and said, this is not the worship I desire. And you say back to him, or they said back to him, well, God, this is the worship you're going to get. Is that pious religion? It doesn't matter how pious it may sound. It is rebellion. And so God declares, they provoke me to my face continually. They can be as pious and religious as they like. God still calls it provocation to his face. Uh, He he says even more in verse 4, They they who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Uh, Now, the people of Israel were probably not literally eating pig's flesh. Uh, if there's one commandment they actually managed to keep from the Old Testament law, it was that one, to stay far away from, from pig's flesh. Uh, but the point that God is making is, as far as God is concerned, it may as well be pig's flesh that they're eating because this man-made religion is unclean in the eyes of God. Their acts of worship 
are acts of rebellion. And the worship itself, rather than paying their debt, is adding to their debt. It is more uh, sin. And and listen to the next verse in this chapter. It's probably the most striking one. Uh, What God declares these people are effectively doing, uh, He says in verse 5, They say, speaking to God, Keep to yourself. Do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Think about that. These people offering their sacrifices. God says, what does this sound like from my perspective in heaven? It sounds like people saying to me, keep to yourself, God. Don't come near us, because we are too holy for you. Here God lays bare the foundation of, of human religion, which effectively says, God, you have no right to speak to me. You have no right to address me or correct me. You have no right even to come near to me. In fact, God, I'm too holy for you to come near to me. You, God, then, are the one with the problem. And so if you mind your business, you keep your distance, then that will keep me from becoming unclean. That's what human religion is in the face of God. It spits in God's face, considering itself too holy for God. That's why when, when the Lord Jesus came, what was the first thing that happened? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were mortal enemies, who hated each other, uh, teamed up and, and had the Lord Jesus crucified and killed. They were so committed to their religion that as far as they were concerned, Jesus was polluting their religion. And Jesus was the problem not their religion. Brothers and sisters, this is man-made religion. And this is an honest picture of man's attempt on man's terms to make things right with God. And it is an insult to God. In fact, God says so in verse 7. He says, Because they made offerings on the mountain and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. God's justice is coming to this world one way or another, whether we acknowledge it or not. And even if, if, if we are too religious, we consider ourselves too religious, too nice, too good, too holy for God to judge us, His judgment will come one way or another. And, and none of our man-made religion will do anything to pay off our debt it only adds to it. And when the Lord Jesus spoke about the, the, the extent of our debt before God, and you remember the parable of the man who owed a king 10,000 talents. It's a parable relating to forgiveness. And, and yet it's a striking detail in there that this man owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, talent was 20 years wages. And so we're talking 200,000 years wages. And what's the man say to God? or to the king, that is. He says, uh, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. That's a laughable suggestion. Uh, Be patient with me, give me 200,000 years, and I'll pay it off. Uh, It's not going to happen. And and that was the Lord Jesus' point. It's an absolutely unpayable amount. So where does that leave us then? The Catechism throws one more uh, suggestion on the table. Uh, The idea that perhaps some other creature can pay off our debt for us. This is how some of the Jews wrongly understood 
the sacrificial system, uh, believing that the, the blood of bulls and sheep and goats uh, was going to somehow bear their sins for them, uh, even though that was, that was obviously not God's intent. And, and that was made clear already from the beginning. And Hebrews 10 verse 4 reminds us it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because bulls and goats aren't the ones who sinned. That doesn't satisfy God's justice. So where does that leave us? It would be the height of folly at this point for me to say, now, brothers and sisters, uh, what shall we do? Let's work harder. Let's read our Bibles some more. Let's pray more often. Let's go to church more often. And by doing so, now we'll finally pay off our debt. That would be silly. Where instead does this leave us? It leaves us with nothing but to run to God. The same God who calls out our sin to also pray for His mercy. And that's what what, uh, Psalm 130 really drove home, which is why we read it uh, together, uh, where the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could possibly stand before a God who counts our sin? And yet, it also says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. That's the response that God calls us to. Uh, You cannot pay it yourself. You will not deal with the problem yourself. And yet God is a God of salvation. Run to Him, and there you will find salvation and mercy. There's no reason why God should have to provide us with a way out. God never owed it to us. But such is the mercy of God that He has given us a way out of our sins. And that is in Jesus Christ. And that's the final part of the Lord's Day that uh, is also highlighted. What hope do we have? What kind of mediator could we hope in? One who is righteous man and also true God. And that is Jesus Christ. Uh, God Himself, as we've seen in Colossians, in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven. He came to be one of us, to stand in our place, to receive the judgment of God on our behalf, to be then the mediator between us and God, and to give us the gift, the gift of forgiveness that we could never purchase ourselves. As the saying goes, grace, the grace of God is free, but it's not cheap. It was bought, it was bought at the very costly expense of the blood of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, there, there is only one hope, and we need to know this as we take all the other options off the table. There is only one hope, and it's a hope that God didn't owe us but God has graciously and freely given us. And that is Jesus Christ. So run to the Savior whom God has sent. Confess, as David has, as the psalmist here does as well, that our sins are numberless. They cannot be counted. Uh, More than the hairs of your head, and they are grievous in the sight of God. Confess that God's judgments are perfect, true and just. Uh, Hold nothing back. Don't cling to excuses and, and minimizations that we've already discarded. Confess your sins. 
lay them before the throne of God, hold nothing back, and then lean on God's mercy in Jesus Christ because that is a foundation you can lean on that will not give way. Uh, His mercy is far greater even than our sins. And just as his, His warnings are dead serious, so also is the sincerity of His promises. He means His promises just as much as He means His warnings. As we saw at the end of last Uh, Last week's sermon, the Lord Jesus declares, All whom the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or as he says elsewhere, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Weary from worldly religion, weary from pleasing God on our own terms, come find rest in the grace, the abundant grace of Jesus Christ. As Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from Psalm 130, stanzas 1 through 4.